And welcome to PodPod. I'm Rihanna Dillon, your host, and this week we're talking to Luke Moore, the COO and co-founder of Stack. So over the past five years, Stack has gone from this tiny independent production company to one that has created over 30 shows, which often top the podcast charts. You might have seen them. So it includes things like P1 with Matt and Tommy, Eureka with Rick Edwards and Dr. Michael Brooks, White Wine Question Time great title with Kate Thornton and the fictional (laughs) audio drama Boom starring my fave Amari Douglas and Sharon D. Clark. So there is a lot to dig into with Luke Moore but before we get there we're going to be joined by regular contributors Matt Hill and Adam Shepard. Hello. Hello. Hey. Hi, this is a treat. I have already seen you both on Zoom because we were all involved in the judging of the BPAs 2023. Can I stop you there, Rihanna, straight away to say that I was not involved in the judging and I never have been involved in the judging and the British Podcast Awards are an independent thing that I do not, I don't have any say in (laughs) Well, you were involved in talking to the judges in that case. You both were. Yeah, that's right. Yes, we had a little speech at the beginning to talk about what makes the Podcast Awards so different and great and what winners of the awards can expect from whatever you choose as judges to be the the next big thing. And uh, it is really exciting to know that the people who are all on that, probably the biggest Zoom call since the pandemic I've seen, were (laughs) like, you know, just very excited to be able to get their opinions out there and make sure that really the best work has been celebrated this year. So yes, Mm. but I still don't know who... In fact, I think probably listeners will probably know more about the shortlist than I do right now because it's still under lock and key as we record. Yes, the shortlist uh, will be published very, very shortly if it's not already. You can head over to podpod.com when the shortlist is announced uh, to see the full list for the BPAs. I was dipping in and out of some of the breakout rooms where the judges' deliberations were happening. And I have to say, there was some really nice, lively discussions going on about you know, what should be on the shortlist. And it was actually really nice to see the the constructive debates that were happening uh, as to the, the sort of various merits of each podcast and what set these podcasts apart for the judges. Yeah, I was one of the judges for sex and relationships and also well-being. So two categories. And I, I've got to be honest, being told that I've got to be on like a three hour Zoom call with a load of other people does sound nightmarish. <laughs> I had the best morning. I genuinely did. It was so fun regaling each other with our experiences of listening to these podcasts and how we felt while we were listening to them, where we were when we were listening to them. I really enjoyed it. And I like, you know, you know me, I'm a critic. I love criticizing and uh, <laughs> critiquing and judging generally. But I do, I think it's such a, a fun way of celebrating all of these incredible podcasts. And I got to say, there was not literally, and previous years, this hasn't been true, but there wasn't a bad one in the bunch that I listened to, which was a real pleasure, to be honest. Yeah, it, says, it says something about the real quality of the industry at the moment, that the shortlists get harder to get onto and harder to reach that top three. There's a real refining going on at the moment, uh, particularly after, you know, a lot of podcasts were started during lockdown. Some of them didn't make it out of 2022. And so by the time we get to this year, it's sort of the ones that have survived have really found their voice. And I think we're really seeing the signs of that in the long lists and now the short lists coming out this week. Yeah. And also, 
I have to say, I'd completely forgotten about this until after we did a little chat at the beginning, but it was 20 years of podcasting on the same day that we did the judging. Oh, it was no like way. the 20th anniversary of the first podcast. And so oh there was like a God. moment of, oh, okay. That's a good, nice little um, anniversary to celebrate with all the, the finest and greatest creators in the industry. So yeah, it was nice. And you forgot to do that. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it was just in the air and I didn't, I didn't have to draw attention to it. <laughs> Definitely felt like it. Well, cheers. Cheers to 20 years of podcasting. And uh, to you, Matt, for being so intrinsic in <laughs> bringing that to the fore. I was in that first podcast. <laughs> You were in the very first, yeah. back in the Stone Age. The spirit ages. of Matt is really in every podcast, isn't it? <laughs> I like to think so. <laughs> so, should we get to Luke more? I have to say, I really enjoyed interviewing him because he was very open and honest and kind of exactly what you, you want from somebody who's in a position where they could be quite cagey, but mm. actually was quite up for being very transparent about the business of podcasts. So, here is Luke Moore chatting to me and Adam. Luke Moore, welcome to Pod Pod. Thank you so much for joining us, especially when you have a son who's eight weeks old. Uh, we really appreciate that. Yeah, possibly my most challenging project to date, but thank you. No, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. <laughs> so we're here to talk all about Stack. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about what you were doing before Stack was a thing and how Stack came to be. Okay. So I've been working in the media industry since 2004. I started a job at Capital Radio on the sales floor as an assistant, um, working with a number of people who obviously then later became contacts, one of whom was Ross Adams, the CEO of Acast, mm. um, one of whom was Pete Donaldson, who's my co-owner of Stack uh, with me, and uh, a number of other people. And then I worked my way through different kind of media companies. I've been at Sky, I've been at Domino Records, I've been at Polydor Records under Universal Music. And then in 2007, alongside working full-time in whichever media company I was at at the time, I started Football Ramble with three other people, one of which was Pete Donaldson, who's a co-host on that show still now. And we, through luck and perhaps a, you know, a, a slight sprinkle of judgment, uh, made it the biggest independent football show, certainly in the UK, possibly beyond that. And that show has passed 150 million downloads wow. now, uh, since its inception, uh, which is an amazing thing. You know, we're very grateful for that and very proud of that. And then in 2018, we were getting quite a lot of interest from people who loved podcasting and wanted to make podcasts. And we had really exhausted, we felt like, all the football podcast options that we could do. So we did like a European football show, we did some documentary stuff, we did some interview stuff. And I've always had a lot more interests than just football, and so did have my colleagues. And so we decided to try and branch out into a more broad production company that that made different types of shows myself pete and john who's the ceo of stack to this day he's not an on-air guy but he's the guy who does everything else basically and so stack was born in 2018 at the start of 2018 so we're just five and a bit years into it now and we've had i think over 30 shows since then of various different types and we've just passed 300 million downloads which is an incredible thing and and that's all been achieved entirely independently from no funding no venture capital no other way than just organic growth through commercialization of shows and building of audiences. It sounds like such an incredible accomplishment. And it sounds, when you say it like that, almost like overnight success. And of course it isn't. So 
from the enormous kind of popularity and success of the football podcast, what did you want to bring like lessons wise from that podcast to expanding? You know, what was at the forefront of your mind of how to build on, on that success? It's a really good question. I think that so much of our career and my career has been almost quite organic. Mm. Like, I always loved radio, right? So I, I never really was told I ever had a voice for radio, which I don't really. And I would never would have gotten near a radio station, a set of capital radio. Mm. But when podcasting came along, it kind of gave, I, I do kind of hate this term, but for the purpose of, of, kind of illustration here, the alternative voice, I suppose, a chance to to just get out there and see if one can succeed on one's own merits, mm. right? And that was something that happened with the football ramble. I think part of the reason it was successful, and of course it is very easy to backfill this narrative, and I'm only really guessing even though I'm a part of it, it felt like to us no one was talking about football the way we talked about it. And I think if I may be so bold, I think the audience kind of agreed with mm. that. Now, how that's relevant to what we then go on to do, I think, is – the universality of entertainment and honesty and a genuine interest in a subject is something that I think people relate to. I feel like whatever you do, you have to put the listenership first and foremost, and you have to understand that there's a lot of competition out there. People have got a lot of choice and, and you know, really everything you do needs to be focused on the listener in mind. And you need to have a good idea of who your listener is and what they what they like and what they don't like. And then of course, there's a lot of mistakes that get made along the way. You know, you have to, you have to, try and kind of adjust and adapt from those as well. So to, to me, it just feels a bit like there was no reason we couldn't make other shows with other talented people popular. We just had to do it and we just had to reinvest in ourselves and reinvest the time. And, and so I, it's always been quite organic. So I find it quite difficult sometimes to try and say, if you do X and Y, then Z happens, because I don't necessarily think that's how the entertainment industry works. The core idea of popularity, I think is something that is quite ephemeral. And I think if people tell you they know how to do it, I don't think that's true. Mm. Just from my own experience. Mm. Yeah, there really isn't any kind of secret sauce when mm. it comes to when it comes to popularity. I think the closest to it is that point of kind of honesty and authenticity that you mentioned. Yeah, I just think the listener kind of hears through it. Mm. Mm. Any kind of ma- so I, I have been in environments where through the success we've had maybe elsewhere, I've been given opportunities in other broadcasting environments where I've done it because I it's you know maybe partly my own ego or you know, I wanted to improve or whatever, and it's not felt at all authentic. And I think so much of traditional media is almost necessarily unauthentic because it has to, it has a different set of goals that it wants to achieve. And I think the podcasting's big strength is that it it shouldn't be like that. And I think a lot of a lot, a lot of players that have come into podcasting more specifically, I don't necessarily think have understood that. Speaking of coming into podcasting, you mentioned that you had kind of a lot of a lot of people before you started Stack coming to you for production and to to get their own shows off the ground. Did you start Football Ramble? always with the goal of providing those kinds of production services to other potential podcasters or? No, no, absolutely not. This is a story that's been told a million times and it's, it's actually a bit cringe for me to actually even say it, but for, for context, <laughs> um, we started as a bunch of friends, four friends around the table in my old rented house in Northwest London with a mini disc player and some <laughs> microphones that um, 
someone had <laughs> quote unquote borrowed from their work. Uh, there was absolutely no idea that we would be we would be not offering any services to anyone else in any capacity. Given that at that point we could barely even service ourselves, so that that's that's a definite no. Uh, but st- I don't think Stack is a production services company now. We, we, don't, we don't have a rate card where people come to our studio or get a day's editing from an editor and, and we, you know, we white label stuff. We very, very rarely, if ever, do that. We, we kind of try and be a passion project-fueled company. So we work on the idea that if people come to us and want to make a show, if we think it's a good idea and we think they've got the dedication, the passion, the talent to do it, we'll give it everything to make it successful. But it's something that we, as a team, have to invest ourselves in and and so there was a bit of that in, involved in it as well. That what else is interesting? Like what I don't want to have a proper job. I've tried that. I didn't <laughs> like it. So can we do other stuff to just essentially deter the idea that I might have to get a job again at some point in the future? <laughs> Something like that, really, probably. We were talking to Jack Davenport from Goal Hanger recently, and he was kind of saying that it's quite difficult for him and his co-founders to step outside of his bubble, which is why a lot of the people who podcast for Goal Hanger look the same. And that's mm. not actually the case for Stat. No. I think that's really interesting that you're saying that you know, you kind of agree you, it's a passion project, it's stuff that you're interested in, but is that necessarily the case? Do all the podcasts that you have with Stack, are they all stuff that you would go out of your way to listen to? Or are you more interested in what audiences are interested in? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I know Jack pretty well, and I love their shows, but they've not quite been doing it as long as we have. So we've probably made quite a lot more mistakes when people didn't care about us, right? We've made a really big effort to try and be a broad church, both internally and externally. So we have a team of 12 at Stack now, and they don't all look like me. I mean, it's not all, you know, 42-year-old white straight guys. It's, it's a different setup to that. And what I see in my role as is to try and really lean into and encourage what people are passionate about. Because I don't want anyone to come into the office not looking forward to coming to work. So what you'll see in there outwardly, I suppose, on the website or through the shows that we make is a reflection of the passions of our team. And obviously I mean this in a super respectful way, but the idea of whether I personally like all the shows at this point isn't that important to my thought process because it's about audience. It's always about audience and it's always about stimulating the passion of our team. That's why we have shows about, you know, how dance music can be more inclusive. That's how we have kind of, you know, comedy, you know, fiction podcasts, you know, commenting on the Me Too movement. That's how we have Kate Thornton's White Wine Question Time that came to us recently, just because I think Kate's an outstanding broadcaster and is amazing at getting great stories out of interesting guests. And I personally think that's fascinating. And I know that there's an audience out there for it as well. So I guess there's a bit of passion on one side and a bit of like, look, what are we doing this for? Why are we all here when we could all just be doing something else? And then also we're a commercial business, right? Everyone wants to get paid. Everyone needs to be paid. We have overheads and we we, we are a serious professional company. And so the commercial realities are present too. So I think it's a bit of all that in the mix. Speaking of that side of things then, and the the sort of investment side, I guess, tell us about the process of moving from home recording to investing in your own fully-fledged studio. How long did it take to scale up and make that jump? Were there any sort of unexpected challenges that you ran into setting that up? In total, it took about 250 years. (laughs) Um, (laughs) 
according to the lines on my face. To go from mini disc to studio. <laughs> yeah. No, it, took a, it took a long time. It took a long time because for, for the challenge for us for the first, really until ACUS came into market, what was that, 2014? So it, mm. for the first seven years at least, relatively speaking, no one cared, right? So the money just wasn't present. So it's not. it wasn't even a factor. Uh, we weren't sitting there thinking, oh God, hopefully one day you know, we'll all be millionaires, Rodders. It wasn't <laughs> like that. You know, this time next year and all that. It wasn't like that. And then I think you've got to be good enough to when you see the market mature and when commercial realities start to become a bit different to take advantage of that. And John, my colleague who, who co-owns the business with me and runs the commercial side of the company is very, very good at that. So that's been hugely beneficial. And really, it's just incremental gains. It's just like you, you make a bit more money. So you start to think seriously about how much do you pay yourself for your time and how much do you pay yourself for your time when you have these ambitions that want to be realized. And one of them initially was our own studio, which costs a lot of money. So it takes a long time to build up that, that revenue. And then you start to build the team. But ultimately, when you start building the team, it becomes more interesting because that increases the capacity and that increases the experiences and that increases the viewpoints. And you start to open yourself up to areas that just wouldn't be available to you because your own experiences just as a single human being are quite narrow. So if I'm in, if I'm in control of what shows we make and what shows we don't, and it's just down to me, the company's going to be probably quite dull unless you're like me, right? <laughs> and I am me and that is regularly quite dull. So, so um, I would say that, it's a very incremental thing. And the way we've done it is totally organic. So every bit of money we've made, we've made a serious decision about whether to reinvest it in the company or to pay ourselves or to, to do whatever. And that's got us to where we are today. But I mean, it's been, I mean, it's genuinely been 16 years of work. And for the vast majority of that, I was also working full time. I only actually stopped working full time in the summer of 2017. So 10 years in. So it's just long and arduous. It's a bit like continental drift. Like you don't actually see it happening, but you know it's you know you know it's there, right? Yeah. So it wasn't the kind of thing where you moved into your own studio and it was an immediate step change. No. Well, that does have a have an impact. Like when you, when all of a sudden you're not trying to sneak into you know central London radio studios that I won't name after dark because you haven't got any money to record a show. You're actually going to your own studio, you know, and you're not kind of not being able to get into that studio because the security is good. And so you go into your friend's house instead and you're not finishing recording until midnight and then you've got to work again the next morning. You know, obviously, it's all it all comes into play. It's all a good thing. I don't think you can realistically, like I can't in the real world anyway, come in and walk into a room and go, right, I've made it now. Great. You know, mm. I'm never like that. I'm kind of just always, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? What's the next thing? And I think that, that, that that's a blessing and a curse for lots of different reasons. But I think when you're trying to run your own company, I suppose it's a good thing because it keeps you always having a bit of momentum. Well, speaking of that new thing and that next thing, did you find that having your own studio opened up new possibilities for the kinds of shows you're making and the kind of content you're making? It did for a while. It was actually a really interesting thing because it made us seem professional. And we'd always try to carry ourselves in a professional way, of course. But if you're bringing someone new into the into the mix and you want to work with them, it's great to take them to a studio in a nice office because then they go, all right, this is serious. Because what podcasting I feel like has always had is this fight to be accepted as a serious thing, 
right? And that's obviously happening a lot more recently. But you know, I spent a long time telling people what a podcast was because they just didn't know. And so the industry is so young that it's always mm. necessarily going to be a bit of a little brother at first and what a fight to be taken seriously. So those kind of optics help, right? And then COVID happened, and then the technology kind of seemed to scramble and, 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 and caught up pretty fast. Now, obviously, we're, we're talking about this together, not even in the same room, and it's probably going to be pretty seamless. And so it's not as important. But I do think there's a power in bringing potential collaborators in and saying, this is our team, you know, this is our studio. It's open, available to you if you want to use it. This is how it works. And, and I think there's a, there's a permanence to that. It's almost a bit like people see a small independent production company and they can relax a bit because they think, okay, so it is professional. It is here to stay. It's not a, it's not just a, you know, a, a fly by night kind of cashing in on the podcasting boom type operation. So I think it has helped us for sure. In those sort of early days when you were making this step up from yeah. expanding on Ramble, what were some of the biggest risks that you took that you think paid off? And then let's talk about the ones that you think maybe didn't. Well, I think everything you do is a risk when you've not got financial backing or, or anything to fall back on, you know, so that comes as an inherent part of it. And it's important not to forget that. So the first show that I worked on developed and brought out post ramble that was a bit different was a show called Berkhamstead revisited, which was a show about a teenage girl. So a girl who's become a good friend of mine now, Laura Kirk, she messaged me on Twitter, I think, or she tweeted saying, I've got a diary for every single thing I did from the age of 13 through to my first year at university. And I'd love to make it into a podcast. And I thought that sounded really interesting. So we met up, introduced to the, the small team we had. I think we had one member of staff. And then we paired her up with that member of staff to make a show where they talked about teenage life as two young girls growing up in kind of like middle England, right? And the risk involved in that was that, you know, at that point, we're the football guys, yeah. right? So why would anyone give a shit about that, yeah. right? Like people are going to go, what are you doing? I remember even my own mother saying to me, why are you doing yeah. that? And I was like, well, because it's an interesting thing. I think people, it wasn't a cynical thing. It wasn't like, oh, this will open us up to a whole new audience. Mm. Because of course, starting a show completely from scratch, even then, was hard, let alone now. And it ended up doing a million downloads and it was great. And, and I was, I'm really proud of it. And you know, the industry wasn't mature enough for it to make any really good money or anything. But what it showed us is that we could do something different, right? That we could work with people that weren't in our own orbit, that weren't just football fans or broadcasters about sport or whatever. And Laura Kirk, to her immense credit, had never broadcasted before. And she does a load of other stuff now. And, and that's down to her. But to, to go into that and to use your studio time and say, you know what, we're going to do this and we'll see if it works. Because if you're not making you know, huge successful shows, you need to at least make sure you're learning. And at that point, I couldn't do other stuff and, and feasibly say to potential collaborators that I could, because I just never done it. So we had to make sure we did it. So I would call that a success, although on paper, it probably you know, it wasn't a financial success. If all of our shows were like that, we wouldn't have a company, mm. if I'm being totally <laughs> honest. Right, but it's true, right? But, but at the same time, you can afford to have those things yeah. at the start, and you can afford to have a few of those passion projects as you grow, because it keeps you honest, and it keeps you learning, and it keeps you motivated. And then there's been plenty of other stuff we've done that hasn't at all been successful by any measure. And there's been a number of different reasons for that. And I've thought about this a lot. And I think ultimately what it comes down to is just that you're dealing with human beings and circumstances change and motivations change and situations that people are in can change in time. 
and sometimes you know, do you know what? I'm being totally honest. Sometimes shit's just not good, right? And you, know, you make excuses for it, right? But it, yeah. you think it's going to work, and it doesn't, and you just got to accept it. Like it's no one else's fault. It's only my fault. If you're not prepared to accept that stuff, I just don't think you should be doing this. Mm. I, th- I think you know, you're not going to have a hundred percent success in anything you do. Risk is inherent in everything you do. You know, if I, if I didn't want the risk, mm. I'd probably just go and get another job, right? And that's just part of it. And I don't say that to sound like, you know cool it's just it's just part of what i want to do i don't want to work for anyone else so i have to accept that if i want to work for myself i've got to take it on the chin when it doesn't work properly oh sorry what was the name of that podcast it was called berkhamstead revisited and then it carried on outside of stack as a show just called revisiting right okay Mm. i am going to listen to that because you've really piqued my interest it's a tremendous amount of Mm. fun and i love the title as well it's such a such a fabulous title no one else is on the call about that so i'm going to say that that was actually my um but it almost certainly wasn't (laughs) so sports is obviously your kind of bread and butter as an organization, you know, particularly the ramble, but, you know, as you mentioned, you've expanded into other genres kind of fairly quickly after, after stack took off and uh, you've started moving into fiction now as well, as you mentioned. So you've recently launched the second season of boom, which is a fiction podcast around the kind of Enron scandal of the early 2000s. Is fiction podcasting as a sort of category something that you plan to explore more going forward as a company? I would say so, yeah. And the reason for that is because at the time of recording this, we're tremendously fortunate that we're working with Adam Jarrell and Joel Emery, who are two of, you know, probably I would say two of the most slept on talents in entertainment in this country. You know, they, they're passionate about audio, which doesn't make them the most fashionable guys in the world, right? Because they're not out there writing for Netflix or directing for Netflix. Well, at the moment, no one's out there writing for Netflix. <laughs> well, no, exa- exactly, right? Yeah, exactly. But they are incredibly talented and and to the just a tremendous pair of talents. Joel, as the writer particularly, and, and there's a couple of reasons why I love us working in fiction. One is because you find yourself in the company of people who are just pure talent, like genuine talent. So that is something I find tremendously inspiring. Now, I wish that the UK market was a lot more in tune to what it can do because there's absolutely no reason in my mind in principle why Boom shouldn't be as successful as a, you know, as a, you know, a Stranger Things or whatever, right? But ultimately, that's just not the reality we're living in. So I don't want to come across as totally deluded. <laughs> but the thing is, the limitation of audio storytelling is so acute that you have to be so creative to get around it. And the second reason I love fiction is because of the IP value of it, right? The IP value of Boom is far bigger to us as an independent company than just the advertising or sponsorship revenue that you get for a six-episode series once a year. Unless it does huge, huge numbers, and there's a lot of barriers to that, it's it's just not realistically a financial going concern. So the IP dimension makes it interesting. So is that something that you're actively exploring then with things like boom like are you at the point where you are having those conversations about optioning with networks and streamers and those kinds of organizations yeah we are and that's something that's of tremendous interest to us and i know the ip question is quite a a, quite a conversational hot potato in podcasting i know that some people aren't as interested in it i don't believe jack at goal hangers is convinced about it as i am but i think it's at worst it's a 
added bonus to a company yeah. like us, right? And at best, I think it can be a real gold mine for for people who want to go on and make big Netflix shows or movies or whatever, just because, as I said earlier, this, the, the limitations and the creativity needed to make great audio stuff is there and, and it gives people a good grounding in how to how to develop that for a visual medium, I think. And so, yes, we are having those conversations. Yes, we've been out to the US and, and stuff to chat to people about it. And, and, and the third reason why I'm interested in IP is because bigger companies in New York and in LA, and they tell me they're interested in it. So I'd be an idiot not to be interested in it because I've got it. <laughs> so I'm not going to say, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. Well, it's interesting. You're kind of talking about Netflix. We're talking about, you know, streamers, etc. But in terms of podcasting, obviously video is starting to play a huge, huge part. And we're yeah. being told all the time that podcasts are I mean, for me, it sounds like a bit of a regression, but I feel like I'm maybe in the minority, but like going towards video content and that you need to have video content if you're making a podcast. So where does Stack stand on that, especially with fictional? Because then you're just essentially creating like a, you know, a YouTube fictional series or something like that, you know? I think the video dimension's interesting as we sit here now this year, because it's had a bit of a journey, right? People went on a big pivot to video famously mm. not just in podcasting but in yeah, lots of different areas of journalism mm. and sports writing and all that kind of stuff websites were just saying yeah we're going to put a load of money into video and, and i think from memory that was all based around you know certain information algorithms that you know certain social media companies were putting out to to further naming their, no further facebooks their own nest, you know yeah exactly <laughs> who, who would have thought it eh? it was the guys you least expect isn't it? <laughs> But I don't think what we're seeing now is necessarily reflective of that. And we've always tried to have at least kind of one foot in the video camp just for supporting the shows, right? So just getting out there and getting get, giving some people a bit, bit visually interesting to look at to hope, hopefully promote the show. But when we see YouTube coming into the industry and doing what it's doing, and I don't know how much you guys have heard about it, probably a lot more than me, but throwing money around to get people to put their podcast on their platform and saying that don't tell anyone, but we're going to try and become the biggest podcast platform in the world and then telling everyone themselves anyway. <laughs> I just don't think people think about the listener and the listener's experience enough. And the way people listen to podcasts, in my experience, audio works and audio has always worked because it's quite a passive medium. Mm. So you stick it in your ears and perhaps you listen to podcasts differently to how you listen to radio because radio, maybe you're in the car or you're in the kitchen, you've got it on the speaker, podcast, you've got your headphones in. As a general kind of rule. I don't understand where video fits into that going forward, unless you're only talking about perhaps younger people, an audience that skews younger, that is sitting there staring at a screen for 45 minutes or an hour at a time, or whatever it may be. I half think that the YouTube thing, people are, they like using YouTube. So they're always on YouTube. So they'll hit the podcast button on YouTube and they'll just put it in their pocket. Now, if YouTube are kind of content with that and there's no, they're happy to not have any visual element to it, I guess it doesn't really matter. It changes the dial for them a little bit because of the way they'll advertise and the way they'll kind of monetize it, I guess will have to change. But maybe they don't care about that. But I guess the question was about video and I don't fully understand, even after all these years, how video sits in to the conversation. And bearing in mind that in the past, companies like Acast have tried to do video solutions and, and other companies have too and they've always just fallen by the wayside chiefly because you know, there's a lot of cost involved, I suppose, but also because I just don't know if people want it. What do you guys think? Well, one of the major drivers behind this push to video is TikTok in particular and, yeah. and that model, which yeah. has bewitched a lot of marketing people and a lot of sort of social media people with the big, big 
big reach numbers that you can get on those platforms, particularly in comparison to existing social channels, you know, things like Facebook, Twitter, the more traditional sort of platforms. TikTok, you can get much, much bigger reach. And a lot of companies and a lot of marketers are looking at that and going, well, that's the future then. Again, not really thinking about the listener and not really thinking about that user journey in terms of, Mm. yeah, you might have a couple of hundred thousand, couple million views on your TikTok clips from your podcast. Those people aren't then leaving TikTok to go and listen to an episode of your podcast. It's a different interaction model. And unless you can find a way to monetize that TikTok audience independent of the podcast itself, why are you doing it if not for just vanity metrics? Exactly right. And in my experience, it all just turns into a massive brand awareness campaign and nothing more because you can't, first of all, even if you wanted to, it's really difficult to chart that journey from a TikTok account to a podcast subscribe. And ultimately as well, I'm not fully convinced that anyone fully knows how TikTok works anyway. No. And so, (laughs) and and if they do know, they don't know why people on it are popular. Mm. Other than the obvious stuff, like a massive recording artist Mm. or a big actor or whatever, the obvious shit, Mm. right? Mm. People who've become organically popular through TikTok and bearing in mind Stack has made shows with more than one of them and we're talking big people on TikTok let's just you know in the most diplomatic way possible there is not a direct crossover there right and so it needs to be handled more thoughtfully I think and yes TikTok can be an amazing discovery platform but you can't shut that journey it's difficult to manage and to understand and so ultimately we've just got to try and make the best content we can. And I don't even like using the word content, the, be- the best shows we can for our listeners and listen to what they want and try and understand what makes them loyal listeners of our shows because, you know, 300 million is a big number, right? But you can't rest on your laurels. You can't afford to just take that for granted. So for me, it comes down to doing what we do best and, and trying the, as much as we can in addition to that to understand why YouTube are coming in, why TikTok are coming in, what that means for us, because ultimately we're an audio business for now. So how are you targeting the right audience for your podcasts? Because you're starting new podcasts all the time and they are very, very different. They're incredibly versatile. You're almost like, it feels like you're maybe having to start from scratch each time with audiences. You're not bringing over the same football audience that you started with. That's a good question. And there's a lot of different things we can do. We can cross promote on the existing shows if the audience is relevant enough. So there's a couple of obvious examples of that. You know, you've got a few different sports shows, a few different comedy shows, all that kind of thing. And it's a graft, right? It's a hard, hard thing to do. And you have to be a bit data driven as well. We've got a data analyst at Stack and he's amazing. And we try and learn as much as we can about an audience. And then we have to to a certain extent, you also have to eyeball it a bit, right? There's a load of things you can do to give yourself the best chance. And that's all I ever say to people when I work with them. You know, If we do all this, we'll give ourselves the best chance. And it may work, and it may not. The trick is to try and get it to work more often than it doesn't. And anyone who's saying they're being more accurate than that, I don't think is telling the truth because people like to talk a lot about their successes and no one likes to talk about their failures. And I would obviously include myself in that. It's an art rather than a science. Mm. In terms of the company structure 
of Stack. You've got 12 employees now. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the role breakdown. Are those staff members focused mostly on the production side of things? Are they support staff? Or is that on the sales side dealing with advertising partners and clients and things like that? So on the commercial side, we work fairly hand in glove with Acast. So we have people who handle that relationship at Stack from our side. And then we have a head of production who oversees most of the stuff that goes on. We have my colleague, John, and he's got two people on his team on the kind of strategy, commercial, legal, business affairs side, organizational side. And the rest are producers and assistant producers and you know occasional broadcast assistants and stuff. But all of our team are full-time employed contracted with all the benefits that come along with that because that's something I feel pretty passionate about. I don't want to talk about it too much, but as a working class lad who tried to come and come and do something, I didn't want other people of my background to not be able to come and work. I would never ask for anyone to work for free. I would never ask anyone to work on not a kind of solid permanent basis with all the kind of security that comes along with that. And then what we try and do is we try and hire people out of university pretty young and then move them through the gears. So younger people come in with no bias because they've not worked anywhere before and they come in as broadcast assistants or assistant producers and we try and give them as much experience as we can and then ultimately they'll take responsibility for two or three of their own shows with an assistant producer alongside them. We'll have a permanent producer on a show and they'll oversee not just the recording, the scheduling, the editing, all that kind of stuff, the sound design, but also the social media support, the administration of sometimes sponsors and that kind of thing. And then the head of production sits over the top of all of that. And then I obviously work alongside that. So that's basically how it works. But you have to be flexible. We can't really have people who are going to say, that's not my job to do that, right? I want people to want to be involved. I want them to want to learn. And, and we'll give them the security of, a good competitive salary, a full-time job, employment protections, all the stuff that you don't get from zero hours or freelance, they get paid into a pension, sick pay, holiday pay, all that stuff. But in return, I want them to be open-minded about what they're working on. It sounds like you're pretty invested in the future of the company and what's to come, especially if you're getting young people in. It sounds like you know you have like a, a plan for longevity. So what is the future for Stack? I want to retire at 43. Which is when? Next year? Uh, September. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, I, I think look, it's, it's an amazing privilege to be able to give young people an opportunity, right? It's a tough world to live in. It was tough when I was young, but it's even tougher now. I, I firmly believe that. And to give people an opportunity and for them to take it and to really make something of themselves through their own work, nothing, you know, we obviously provide them the environment, but they do all the work. It's something that is, I'm really passionate about. And it's something I wasn't, prepared to be so invested in when I first started doing this. I wanted to make shows because I loved audio. And so that's really what motivated me initially, as well as kind of gobbling off with my mates and telling jokes and all that kind of stuff, which is, you know, needy and, and attention seeking. But I guess that's all <laughs> of us in this industry to an extent. But what did really hit me upside the head was the idea that it's really rewarding to work with young people and see them grow and, and they can give you an amazing perspective. And so we'll keep doing that. I just wanted to pull on that thread a little bit around recruitment because bringing new talent into the industry is something that a lot of organizations have struggled with or been trying to address. And I just wondered if you could give us a little bit of information on where you're sourcing these talented young people from. Are you sort of working with universities directly or is it just open recruitment? So we've done some stuff with universities done some stuff with open recruitment 
which is hard because we're a small team and it takes a lot of work. And there's a lot of people out there that want to work in our industry, which of course is a great thing, but sorting through all that is very, very tough. And it's actually quite demoralizing to kind of turn down so many people, like to give people so many pieces of negative news in one go, right? We've also used a recruitment company for some particular specific roles, but I try to be a believer in young people, right? I want people to start their journey because I want them to be so enthusiastic they can just really hit the ground running. I don't. I think everything else you can pretty much teach. And to be honest, people who come to our door in that way, they're already doing university radio. They've already learned how to use Audition. They already mm. know their 15 favorite podcasts. They, they mm. kind of know so much compared to when I was young that it's not as difficult as you think to get them up and running if they, if they want it enough. We don't have a recruitment process like a big company would because that's a lot of work. It's a lot of HR work and we don't have any HR employees. We have to use a different, you know, we have to outsource all that stuff. So um, it's quite organic, I'd say. Most of what we do is organic. And I think as we move through the gears and become a bigger company and become more formalized, we pick up these processes as we go. and We have a process for this and a process for that. and, And it just comes through experience, I think. I don't have any interest necessarily in people of my age like me who are jaded and set in their ways and dogmatic. I, don't, I, I can't surround myself with that type of stuff too much. <laughs> well, as someone who got their job at university in the media, like I am very much a fan of people looking to young people to bring them in at that age because there are no easy ways in. But if you're kind of trying to impress the people that you know are in the position to give you jobs which Haymarket, I think, have been doing recently as well. Like they're trying to bring in university graduates and you see it and you appreciate it because otherwise it's so, so difficult without, as you say, nepotism. (laughs) Yeah, a great living example of that would be our head of production, Charlie, who he's the most important person at the company probably. And he came in on a day rate just doing tweets for the Ramble. Mm, Oh, can I come in the office? Yeah, we paid him a day rate and he was just tweeting on behalf of the Football Ramble's Mm. social media accounts. And now he's head of production so he's gone social media assistant broadcast assistant assistant producer producer a senior producer head of production in like four years because once you've got a good one you've got you've got to keep them got to keep them happy right otherwise they they start to wonder their eyes wonder (laughs) the grass is always greener you know (laughs) the downside about young people is they want to get somewhere anywhere really far yeah 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 (laughs) yeah you need to nurture and then keep it's true (laughs) yeah yeah luke thank you so much for joining us what a pleasure it's been to talk to you i've really really enjoyed our chat Oh, the pleasure's been mine. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you championing um, what we're trying to do. And it's really great to, to chat to you guys. And I hope we can catch up again soon. Thank I you. I hope so. And congratulations on Stack and congratulations on your new baby. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Like I said, my toughest project to date. Hopefully I'll survive it. <laughs> <laughs> so that was Luke Moore. And I guess I'm just really impressed by the breadth of the kind of podcast that Stack put out and the fact that there is a real mix of known and unknown talent. And do you think that striking that balance is the way to go, Matt? Is it the way to go? I mean, like if everyone was a draw to a podcast, then obviously it would make you a very successful network and that was always going to be a good thing. I think having a mix, though, is what keeps us sane, bringing out new talent and showcasing what they do, I think is probably what a lot of us in podcasting came into it for as sort of self-publishers turned entrepreneurs turned into companies. It's about creating a platform and then giving that platform to other people. So there has to be space within a network or such like to bring new voices and new perspectives into the media. It's great that Stack are doing that and doing it really effectively as well around a network where they can push their audience around to make that happen. It is still the case though that you know even on a show 
that mixes up its celebrity guests with people that are lesser known, you will find that the episodes that people listen to most are the ones with a celebrity name on the title. And the ones, if you've never heard of, get less listeners. And it may be like 20% less or something like that. And that is the hit you take. But I think for the greater good, really, because ultimately the talent you find through that process and the stories you put in front of your audience are the reason why loyal listeners stick around and where you know you might find the next big talent. And from everything that Luke said, Adam, what do you think is the most organic thing about the way that they've grown the company and grown the network? Because as we kind of said, he did make it sound very easy and we know that that just is not the case. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I think Stack makes an interesting counterpoint to last week's guest, Jack Davenport, because Goalhanger do very much follow that strategy you were talking about, Matt, of having those kind of big name celebrity hosts on the top of the podcast and bringing audiences in that way. But Goalhanger are launching The Rest is, is Football, obviously. And during that interview, Jack mentioned that there were very successful, long-running football podcasts, independent football podcasts. And I assume that he must be talking, at least in part, about Football Ramble. And that, you know, using one sort of flagship show as the main driver of a company's expansion, I think is is quite interesting because it does give you that freedom to be able to expand a bit more organically. One of the interesting things in terms of their expansion is their move into fiction podcasting because that's a bit of a left field turn. Yeah, it was for me as well. I mean, as as speaking of someone who started in in sort of drama and fiction podcasts, and that's where the name Rethink Audio came from was this uh, idea of doing sort of fiction for young people. Ah. It wasn't where the money was. So we <laughs> moved on. <laughs> but I, when Stack did it, I thought because it, it started the first one was basically a spin-off football drama that you know the clever thing was giving an audience something interesting and different to listen to in the off season Mm. so saying this is for you as footballers but it is also something very different which is a piece of fiction but it showed a real statement of intent that you could push this audience who had come and were identified with football and move it into other genres with this is the kind of like the Trojan horse of football and then just carry on making drama. And I just thought that was really interesting. My, yeah, a sort of a lot of respect for Stack for kind of starting that off. The other thing I uh, took away from that interview was about video and a certain level Mm. of scepticism about where video falls in in the podcaster's lot at the moment. I've been kind of pondering this for a while now about, you know, and playing with different types of video content for different shows. And I think, I mean, absolutely right that video won't replace audio as the way in which people consume things, you know, even, but it does open up a new... Uh, set of avenues for uh, like places like YouTube. But I do think what it's really good at is giving listeners who have never heard your show before a sense of the quality of it. So even mm. if they are just tuning in for the first minute visually and then they stick it in their pocket or they see the trailer and then they download the podcast, there are so few indicators of the quality of a show until you hit play. And even then it might take a couple of minutes of produce music before the the truth comes out that it's just 
being able to display just beyond the square artwork what your show is and how it feels visually as to what you're going to get audibly is, I think, a really good thing for the industry. And yes, it is a pain to do it every week. And it's even harder to do it in fiction. But when it works, I think it's got the real opportunity of opening a new shop window for listening that wasn't there before. So if you're making a news podcast that looks a bit LBC, you know, a little bit like the news agents have borrowed very well from the global handbook in terms of like how to make news look. And it gave it a real sense of gravitas, mm. I think, in terms of how people heard the show. And that can actually play to your favour in terms of actually getting people to actually press play and hit follow. Thank you so much, Adam and Matt, for joining me this week. And of course, thank you so much to Luke Moore as well for chatting to us. And of course, you for listening. Find out more on podpod.com and do sign up to our daily email bulletins and let us know what you think about the shortlist for the BPAs. We'd love to hear what you think. Follow us on social at podpodofficial and don't forget to rate and subscribe. We love those five stars. The podcast is produced by Emma Corsham for Haymarket Business Media and I'm your host, Rihanna Dillon. I'll see you very soon. Pod, 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 pod.